The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning to listen to your word in numerous different ways. And now we listen to your word preached, and I pray that you would give power to it. They would move in each of our hearts. Spirit, would you do that? Would you work in us? Claim glory for Christ this morning, I pray. In his name, amen. On the second page of my Bible, Genesis chapter 3, there is the record of a great rupture. Something happens there in which God and man are torn apart from one another. They're separated. And more than that, people themselves are torn apart from one another. A chasm is opened not just between God and people, but because of that gap, a chasm is opened between people. And more than that, more than just God separated from people and people separated from other people, people are also separated from the creation. We just sung of far as the curse is found, the curse is found everywhere. The creation itself is subjected to groans and agony because of this event. What a tragic day. Everything that we suffer here in this life comes from that day. But the good news is that a day is coming at which all of that can and for the people of God will be reversed and knit back together. The rupture will be healed. That essentially is what we've been looking at over the last several months as we've been working through the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to take a chance at the beginning here to review a little bit of that. We still have one more week left in the first half of Ephesians, but this week this passage actually serves us a little bit better for sake of review. The first three chapters have exposed us to the biblical gospel from a number of different angles, all of them working to address this great rupture that happened in Genesis 3. Initially, the gospel of sovereign grace was seen to be intensely personal and individualistic. The God and Father of all the creation, before the creation began, called out particular individuals, poured on them his grace, selected them to be his chosen portion and his lot his inheritance, made them heirs of a great heritage themselves, and he sealed all that with the Holy Spirit after they believed. His work in and on them was not caused by anything they had already or one day would yet do. It is by grace you are saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Praise the Lord for this glorious, personal, individualistic gospel. But then the emphasis shifts 
And Paul begins to more thoroughly discuss something that's been implied all along. You see, as God has one by one by one been calling out individuals, he's forming quite a collection of people. As he has been one by one by one making people heirs, adopting them into his family, he's collecting quite a significant family. So the gospel is individual, individualistic, but it also has ramifications for a body. It has corporate ramifications. What are those? The gospel saves individuals, and the gospel also forms one new individual, one new humanity, one new man, formed from two, Gentile and Jew, and formed from many. Under the headship of Christ, there is one new humanity created in the gospel. God has taken believing men and women and boys and girls from those two groups and from all kinds of other separated groups. And he's brought them together and fashioned a body from them. One body, one group, one new humanity. The gospel is also about the church. In that gospel, then, the gap is closed between God and man and between people here in the church. But there's also a third theme that's less well emphasized, but it's there. You can see it in hints here and there. For example, the heavenly places exist. There's a spirit realm. And we exist in it. And Christ, by workings of the gospel, has triumphed in it on our behalf. You see in, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, how he will one day bring everything, things, on heaven, things in heaven and things on earth, all things throughout all the creation, far as the curse is found, he will one day bring all of them back together, reuniting them back under the authority of Christ. Some will be judged, some will be brought back in peace, but everything will be brought back. The gospel is also then cosmic in its scope. That is, the ramifications of the gospel stretch beyond just what happens in my personal individual heart and in yours. The ramifications stretch beyond what happens between us in our relationship here. And they stretch beyond us to all of the creation, all things, into the animal world and the plant world and the spirit world, beyond even our earth into all of the cosmos. Everything, things in heaven and on earth, will all be brought back. The curse will be reversed. One day again, the land will yield up its produce willingly, not just thorns and thistles. Disease will be gone. I can't even imagine that kind of a world, but it is coming because of the gospel. The gospel is individual and personal. It is corporate and it is cosmic. All three of those aspects of the gospel in some way or another appear in our passage this morning. I mean Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. All three of them are there. They're all touched on or alluded to in some way, but the emphasis falls on the middle one, the corporate theme of the church. And specifically what I hope that you take away from this this morning is just this. The church is central to God's eternal plan. So embrace it. The church is central to God's eternal plan. So you and I must embrace it.
the universal church, all the saints throughout time, and then by extension of that, the local church. It's the only way we get in touch with the universal church. That church is central. It plays the dominant main role in how God is unfolding his plan for all of the creation. He has a plan. He's not just making it up as he goes along. He's had an eternal purpose and he's unfolding it bit by bit and the church is right smack in the center of it. And if the church is that central to all that God is doing, then it must be that central to all that you and I are doing. That which God so highly esteems and deeply cares about, you and I should pay attention to and fasten our hearts to as well. We should embrace it also. The church is central to God's eternal purpose. Embrace it. I think that three questions will help us unfold this this morning, help us look at this passage. First, I'm going to ask, how did God form the church? It's the first one. Why did God form the church? And then lastly, very briefly, really as a, as a closing point, what are we supposed to do with that? What's, what's our response supposed to be? So there's a how, a why, and a what. That's where we're going to go, but first let me read the passage. Reading Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The first question of this text comes out of verses 7 to 9. How did God form the church? Paul begins with a restatement of some of the things that we saw last week. And so some of the answer to this how will sound a little familiar here. He says, of this gospel of this mysterious gospel that answered the problem of the question of how are the Jews and Gentiles going to be united, of this gospel, of this personal, corporate, and cosmic gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister by grace, by the gift of God's grace. In grace and in power, God had decided to save Paul, and I think Paul's reflecting on that when he says the very least of all the saints. You see, Paul used to be not just somebody standing like in the middle, uninformed about Jesus. He was an active persecutor of Christians, an active persecutor of Christ. He looks at himself and many others probably looked at him and said, how in the world would you become one of the foundation stones of this new temple? 
He thought of that about himself all the time. How am I in this place? I am the least of all the saints, the very least. And yet the grace and power of God worked on me to save me when I wasn't seeking him. And more than that, to give me a ministry. This grace was given, middle of verse 8. And note that phrase, this grace, standing in there for the ministry from verse 7. So really, it sort of says, this ministry was given to me. And two things, second half of verse 8, to preach. And verse 9, to make known or to make plain, to illuminate, to bring to light. These two things are the heart of Paul's ministry, given to him by the grace and power of God. How did God form the church? That process we saw last week. He obtained particular individuals, drew them in, supernaturally revealed to them the mystery of the gospel, and then sent them out to preach and to make it plain. From Jerusalem to Rome and perhaps even to Spain, Paul traveled, preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached that Jesus, eternal God, had come in the flesh. He'd come to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and then to be the final sacrifice of the law. He came to bear the curse of God as he was hung on a tree and to provide a way for all those who trust him to avoid the curse, to be removed from out from underneath of the wrath of God. Therefore, he becomes our great shepherd. He's able to lead us by quiet waters and cause our hearts to lie down and rest. He introduces us then and joins us to, fastens us to peace, great eternal joy, calmness of heart, forgiveness. He will sustain the brokenhearted. He will heal our infirmities. He will carry our sorrows. He will give purpose to life. He will give meaning to suffering. He'll give hope to the hurting. He reunites us with other people. He defeats Satan. He destroys death and he remakes all of the world. Through him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can only list some of them. But there are many. In Christ we are made heirs of a fabulous inheritance. We are made objects of God's affection in Christ. We are made recipients of his great power and of his mercy and his grace. All of this, the unsearchable riches of Christ, comes to us only because and as we are in Christ. These are fabulous, unsearchable riches, but above them all, beneath them all foundationally, around them all, it's the greatest blessing. We've talked about it before, but in Christ we are reconnected to God Himself. All of these other things are marvelous, but the pinnacle of them is God. And in Christ we have God again. Through God the Son, we have access in God the Spirit to God the Father. Fellowship with the one triune God, the only God there is. We have fellowship with Him for eternity. Privilege in Him, in Christ, to look on God with heart eyes that are enlightened. And to see Him, and to enjoy Him. To, along with all of the nations, be glad and to sing for joy, like we saw last week.
that is provided to us in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, who He is for us and what He brings to us. They are unsearchable, or as the NAS translates it, unfathomable. I like that word, unfathomable. A fathom is a unit of measure for water, depth of water. You could ask, how deep is the Atlantic Ocean? I don't know, a hundred fathoms maybe, a thousand fathoms. How deep are the riches of Christ? A hundred fathoms, a thousand fathoms? Unfathomable. You send down the sonar wave looking for the bottom and it goes and it goes and it goes and it never comes back. There isn't a bottom. The riches of Christ to us are unfathomable. You can't measure them. It doesn't mean that we can't know anything about them. It means that we can never know everything about them. You can't measure them. Think of the things that I just mentioned. That list is a marvelous list, but it's in no way complete because I don't even know everything that I should say to try to make that list complete. But suppose it is. All that list of things would do would be to lay out the surface of the ocean. Tell us where it is and, and how wide it is, but it wouldn't say anything about the depth of it. We can't measure the depth. How do you quantify carries our sorrows at the death of a loved one? How do you quantify gives us full joy in the face of bad medical news? You can't. What does forgiveness and removal of guilt and eternal fellowship with God look like sitting there on a scale all weighed out and measured up? You can't. You can't do that to those things. They're unfathomable. They're deep beyond deep. And the more of life that you live and the more you experience them, the more you realize how deep they are. You don't know what it is that Christ carries your sorrows until you've had a lot of sorrow. Some of you experience this much more than I have. He is unfathomably rich for us. This is just some of the richness that Christ is, and it's what Paul preached throughout the largely Gentile Mediterranean world. This message of the excellencies of Christ and how they can be enjoyed by grace through faith in Christ. That message preached gave birth to the church. It was the means that God appointed to use to bring the church to life and then to nourish it and grow it. That's the message that he carried. It's how God formed the church and it is how he is pleased to continually reform the church. The church, whenever and wherever this message of Christ is preached, will grow. We should note that. It's not just for information's sake here, it's for us as well. We should note how God grows the church. Preach Christ and His infinite worth and His infinite glory and His unsearchable riches. Preach Christ. Preach Him to your neighbors. Preach Him to those of us here in the body, but first and foremost, preach Him to yourself. Preach this message of Christ to yourself. God gives life through this message and God sustains life through this message. Remind yourself of it regularly. 
It's interesting to note that this message is written in the Bible, and the Bible is most often written to Christians. God wants to tell Christians about these things, to remind them of it. The full-orbed preaching of Christ must be the center of what we are all about. It is how God births and rebirths his children. It's how he feeds them. It, you know, it might be simplistic to say, along with the children's song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. You know that song? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It sounds a little childish, a little simplistic, but it's true. It's certainly possible to read your Bible and pray and not grow, but you can't grow if you don't read your Bible and you don't pray. This message of Christ is what God uses to grow the church, and for us now, it is in the Scriptures. Paul doesn't walk in here and preach it anymore. It's right here. We must use the means if we have any hopes of growing. We need access to the message of Christ and His excellencies to grab our heart and change us. That's largely what these three chapters have been about. We need access to that message, and it's right here. Pray, pray, pray for enlightened heart eyes so that when you open up the scriptures, you can see Christ in it. Not just black ink on a white page, but so that you can see it and be gripped by it and changed by it. We need grace for that, so pray for it. Use these means. Preach Christ to yourself. Paul was sent to preach the riches of the God of Israel made available in the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. A marvelous mystery. As he did that, there was one aspect of this gospel that he had to give unique emphasis to. We've been talking about it before, this mystery of how the Jew and Gentile are joined together. It could be a little more brief here since we've covered it so much recently. Verse 9. The second part of the ministry of grace given to Paul and to bring light and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul preached the riches of Christ and some of those things would not have been at all surprised to a faithful Jew. Peace with God when Messiah comes? Well, of course. Heirs to and recipients of a vast inheritance in the time of Messiah? Sure. Makes sense to me. But try this one on. One new man, Jew and Gentile, equal co-heirs, both atoned for by the crucified Messiah, who took the curse of God on himself. That's a different message. That was a mystery. In fact, not just a, a difficult mystery, but entirely hidden from the sons of men and other generations, verse 5. Hidden for ages in the mind of God, verse 9. Paul and others received by revelation this truth, and they had to proclaim it and make it known. In this Messiah, in this crucified Messiah, the plan of God for all of the ages is being carried out, and he is uniting Jew and Gentile and many other people from countless tongues and tribes and peoples and nations all into one new humanity under the headship of Christ. That had to be revealed. How Psalm 67 would become to reality that the nations would be glad, that had to be revealed. And so God did that. There were hints, to be sure, in the Old Testament. But in the final analysis, it was hidden. Hidden in the mind of God, revealed to Paul, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. Paul preached these riches, 
and he illumined the mystery of how the riches would be applied to Gentiles. He traveled far and wide and he preached that and God was pleased to use it to form the church. How did God form the church? The process of acquiring, gifting, and then sending out the message of the excellencies of Christ. We should thank God for that. That's how we all got in, if in fact you are in. We should thank God for that, but we also should mimic it and continue to preach that message today. It will form and reform the church. It's our first question of how. God sent him out with a message of power to form the church, but that leads to why. Why did God form the church? The question begins to be answered in verse 10. Why did he do it? So that, beginning of verse 10, there's a reason coming here. So that through the church, the church is a means to something. It's a tool or an instrument in God's hands to accomplish something. And if I were you, I'd be sitting here thinking, I'm a member of the church. God is about to tell me something that is central to my purpose in life. Now, you've probably got a lot of other things you should be doing as well, but this is central to it. It's a key element to God's intention, God's purpose for your life. It's coming up here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. God formed the church to do something now that was not possible before. God formed the church to show off. It might sound a little conceited, but think about this. We all are to give honor and glory to the most worthy and the most glorious thing in all the universe. God lives by that rule too. The most glorious thing in all of the universe is God, and God is therefore bound to give glory to himself, to show himself off. It makes sense, and it's also what the text clearly says. He did it now to display his wisdom, to show something about himself. It's marvelous, glorious nature. God worked marvelous miracles when he fashioned the first creation. To create something from nothing, it, it is impossible. Nobody but God can do that. And we can even look around at the creation today, even considering the state that it's in, and we can still see significant markers to his wisdom and his power. I had a friend who used to say, I just look at my hand sometimes, and I see how it works, and, I, and I'm amazed. It's amazing. We should stop and think about things like that. But almost the whole Bible... And all of our lives are staged against a backdrop of brokenness in which ruin and misery mark our ways. Death and destruction are common. What happened? Satan and temptation and sin and fall and curse happened. Satan saw God's very good creation and he saw how much God delighted in it and he saw how much of God it showed off and he said, hmm, I'm going to do something about that. I kind of picture it like this, as if God had laid out a huge table with like a train diorama on it. 
There were hills and trees and fields and lots of little bitty people. There's a town there with little animals and cats and dogs. And of course, there's a train running through it and streams and a vast table. And God finished and said, look at that. And Satan said, yeah, look at that. And he walked up and he threw the table over. And he stepped back and laughed. <laughs> God did your creation. But little did he know that he was playing right into God's hand. As if the Lord said to him, You think you have destroyed my creative work. You have diminished my glory, my ability to show myself off. You think that you have turned the tables on me and defeated me. I've got news for you. Long before I made any of this and long before you overthrew it, I knew what was coming. And I've had a plan as to how to deal with you. Have a seat, Lucifer. Watch and learn. And then as Satan watches on, God begins to bit by bit reshape the world and recreate it. He begins to direct history towards the cross, towards the mystery of the gospel, towards the unfathomable riches of Christ being poured out on Jew and Gentile alike. Marvelous, stunning things that were not known in that first diorama. Marvelous and stunning things that could not be known if the table had never been overturned. He's directing all of this. He's displaying his marvelous wisdom and gaining marvelous glory in this new work, in this new creation in Christ. He begins to close the chasm between himself and people, and people and people. And he points ahead then to the closing of the chasm between people and all of the creation. He begins in the Old Testament, to be sure. He begins there. But the ultimate fulfillment, the end goal of God's work is not until the church. It's not until now. The grand plan of redemption. God's eternal purpose carried out in Christ. Verse 11, I believe. It's being carried out now here in the church. God saves people individually, yes, but he never leaves them as individuals. He always brings them into a body. He is a corporate agenda. The church universal and by church and by application in the church local is what God is about. It's what he's building. In the church and through the church, God makes known his manifold wisdom, his complicated, varied, amazing, intricate, creative wisdom. You look at the church and you see the plan of salvation. You see the individual plan of salvation in living color, that train diorama. You look at it again and there are now many, many more people. And it's not just that one little group of them is blessed, but that group is now quite large. And you know what? It's multicolored. It's a lot different. And the people themselves even, if you look closely, they even look a little different. Indwelt with the Spirit of God in a new and unique way. Something different is happening there. God is at work. He saves and He changes people. He makes people that are now no longer what they once were. People gripped by sovereign grace. Grace that changes remakes all of a person's life and heart and values, perspective, living testimony to the power and the glory and the wisdom of God, the riches of Christ poured out to them. 
when you look at the real life, properly functioning church, you see the personal gospel. But you also see the corporate gospel. Because you're looking at a group, people who shouldn't get along, and out in the rest of the world, don't. But here, in the properly functioning church, they do. They live in peace, in biblical peace, that shalom that we talked about, that is not just tolerance of, but actual heartfelt affection for. People that are bound together, united. You see Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, black and white, rich and poor, educated and not, it doesn't matter, drawn together into the church in love and in peace and harmony with one another. You see the corporate gospel right here in the new holy temple with the palpable presence of God in our midst. Other human beings can come to the church and they can see this. But Paul specifically makes the point that it's not just other human beings who see it. But God's manifold wisdom is on display for the education of the demonic rulers and powers in the heavenly places. He especially makes that point. If you weren't here before and we've talked about these terms, you could glance ahead to chapter 6, verse 12 really quickly. You could see how Paul uses them, but they are evil powers in a spirit realm. His point here in this chapter is that the witness of a properly functioning church is central to, it's right in line with his eternal purposes, his eternal plan, and it's all being made known to these demonic powers. Satan has taken a seat and is watching and is learning more and more and more about God and what God does. The witness of a properly functioning church reaches then into the cosmic realm. We are educating them. And I think in so doing, we are pronouncing their doom. They can look at us and they see the corporate gospel, God rejoined to man. The personal gospel. They see the corporate gospel of people rejoined to people. And I think they can see the writing on the wall. If not, they can read about it in places like Ephesians 1. They can see the end coming when all of the creation will be brought back. And that speaks a word of judgment to them. The time is coming when the curse will be reversed far as it is found. He's going to fix all things. He's going to deal justice everywhere in the spirit realm as well. They look on and they see us and they see God who is already marvelously restoring some of what they wrecked. And I think they see the future coming. The enmity that was placed between people it's being overcome the enmity between people and God has been overcome God is at work here look around they are looking around are you looking around look around at the church behold the power and wisdom of God acting through the gospel of Christ to change it to form an entity that is radically different than the rest of the world. A new humanity that resembles and actually is an improvement on the original humanity in the garden before Genesis chapter 3. God is at work doing this right before our eyes and right before their eyes.
in the witness of a properly functioning church. But notice, I said, properly functioning church. The wisdom of God is displayed in the existence and workings of a properly functioning church. For this display of God's wisdom to happen, it's important that the church function properly. And here's where we come back around to your purpose. You see, products reflect on their creators. If you were to see a a nice BMW or Mercedes-Benz driving down the road, amongst a number of other things, you might think, look at that fine German engineering and that sleek German creativity. It's efficient, attractive, powerful, comfortable. That's a nice car. We don't say that because we're biased towards the Germans. We say that maybe even grudgingly if we happen to work for an American car company or own a Japanese car or something, but regardless, we have to admit, that's a pretty nice car. Well done, Mr. Mercedes. Well done, Mr. Benz. have to admit. But what happens when we consider another famous European car, the Yugo? Remember the Yugo? Kind of like a crunched up square Ford Escort with a lawnmower engine in it. My apologies to you if you ever had to own one of those. You don't see too many of them on the road anymore, and there's a reason for that. They were a collective piece of junk. Now, whatever may be true for Yugoslavian engineering in general, I I don't know. I'm not saying anything about that. But whatever is true of it in general, the Yugo did nothing to enhance its reputation. I'm speaking in broad generalities here, of course, but you see my point. Is Salt Lake EV free more of a Mercedes or more of a Yugo? What kind of a church are we? When the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places look at us, do they have ample evidence of the manifold wisdom of God right before their eyes? Do they look at us and perhaps even grudgingly admit, I hate what he is about, and I hate what they are about, but even I have to admit, that's some remarkable work. Those people used to be on my side these short weeks, months, years ago. They used to think like I thought. They used to act like I think. They used to really be about my agenda, and now he's robbed me of them and is changing them, and they much more resemble him than me now. And they are growing more and more like that. They give living display that they've been reunited to God and that they are being reunited to other people in this church. I'm not really very fond of that, but I have to admit, that is a remarkable work. Is that the response when they look at us? Or do they look at us and say, about God, is that the result of your eternal plan? That right there, you had eternity to think that up and that's what you came up with? You're less worthy of praise than I thought you were. Which is it? Probably a bit of each. But which is it more predominantly? And what's our trajectory? How are we doing at walking 
in a worthy manner, individually and corporately. A significant part of God's purpose for your life is to be involved in building a Mercedes church. Please understand, get the illustration, I am not talking about what kind of cars we should drive or any outward appearances. There are plenty of very wealthy churches with huge budgets who are Yugos and vice versa. A significant part of God's purpose for your life is to build a Mercedes church. How are you doing at that? How are we doing at that? It's not just me telling you because I'm the pastor and it would make my life easier if you acted like that. Therefore, I'm I'm serving myself. I hope it is plain. This is the scripture's statement here. God has a purpose for the church. God is trying to show off his wisdom through the church. And we have a part in that, how we reflect it. I hope that's plain. How one walks in a worthy manner, how we will display this kind of a church, some of what we've been talking about now for all these months. It's Paul's tactic in showing us these first three chapters is to change our hearts. It loops right back to the first point about how God forms a church by preaching the excellencies of Christ to us. How you walk in a worthy manner is you get a mind that's bathed in these truths. And then we be a people who are each individually bathed in these truths. That's how it happens. It's taking every thought captive. As soon as it happens, as soon as it pops into your mind, as soon as the event occurs, you take it captive and you hold it right up next to all of the stuff in these chapters. And you say, you know, that is rubbish compared to what I read about myself in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. When you get to that point, you're going to walk worthily. Walk in a worthy manner. That's why it's critical that we be about preaching the message of Christ to one another, in season and out of season, always. Pray for eyes to see it, to be gripped by it. It's how it happens, but what would it look like? What does a properly functioning Mercedes church look like? Paul's going to illuminate us a little bit on that in the next few chapters. Four, five, and six are going to flesh that out some. But in addition to just preaching through these chapters, beginning in January, we're going to be beginning an adult Bible fellowship class, an ABF, adult Sunday school, if you will. Be beginning in late January, perhaps early February. All the details aren't ironed out yet. But it's going to be a class that describes some of the attributes of what it looks like to have a properly functioning church. What's important to be in a church, to be valued by a church. What do the actual details look like? We'll cover some of those in this class. I'm going to teach part of it. The elders will rotate and teach part of it. Look for more details about that and plan to attend. I think it will be helpful for you and helpful for setting some of the direction that our church is going to be going. That'll be some of what... This church looks like this Mercedes church. Why did God form the church then to summarize this? To use it as his chief instrument to display to the world his wisdom and therefore to gain for himself much glory. That's what God is doing. The church is therefore central to God's universal, eternal plan to reveal himself, to show himself off, And what happens here in this church, therefore, matters. 
immensely to the glory of God. If your perspective is that the church is fun fundamentally about you, your perspective needs to change. The church is fundamentally about him. And then secondarily, gloriously about us. The church is central to all of what God is doing. It must be central to what you and I are doing. And the third question, briefly, as I said, really just to close. From verse 13, what should be our response to all this? Verse 13 is Paul's closing statement about this tangent that he's been on since 3.1. And he says to them, in essence, look back at all this. Look at this tangent that is about the mystery of the gospel. It's the gospel about how you are reconnected to God and how Jew and Gentile and others are connected to, the, to each other and how we even reach into the cosmic realm as we witness to folks there. Look back at all of that, the gospel with all of those ramifications. Think about them. Fill your minds with them. Let them give you hope, even amidst setbacks like my imprisonment, says Paul. We are in a war and there will be casualties. There will be hardships. What holds our hearts, what sustains us in those times is looking back at these things, finding hope in them. God is on the march. He's carrying out an eternal plan. Trust him. Trust him. You know, if you're organized, you can share the gospel with somebody in about two minutes, maybe less. But if you want to be thorough, take you an eternity. You'd never be able to explain all of the inner workings and the outer effects of this gospel. It's personal and corporate and cosmic. It is large Look at it and look at the all-wise, glorious God who's worked it out, who planned it and is executing it. Reverence Him and worship Him and stand in awe of Him and let yourself be persuaded to trust Him. It's the point of telling you these things. He doesn't tell you so that you'll know. There's not going to be a quiz on these facts. But there is going to be a quiz on what you do with these facts. There is. Is it producing change in you? Are they inclining you towards worthy walking? I pray so. I hope so. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.